This is Boom Goddess Radio, igniting inspiration in primetime women. We are Jennifer Davis-Page, B.B. Peters, and Dr. Andrea Gould. Welcome, everyone. What a treat to be here in the Bordello studio, as we were just calling, with a terrific recording this morning. Good morning, Dr. Andrea. And good morning, B.B. Peters and our delightful guest, Dr. Ariana Scholes Douglas, welcome. We're so delighted that you're here to talk about a very inspiring, hot, energetic, and provocative topic at times, right? Provocative. I like that word. Yes. Provocative. Yeah. Welcome. So just to begin to give our listeners a little bit of a perspective, tell us about your uh, profession, what you are doing, and a little bit of how you got here. Sure. So I'm by training a obstetrician gynecologist, and I have additional training in high-risk obstetrics or perinatology. So I've been practicing um, or have been practicing perinatology for the last 20 plus years. And at some point, just kind of got burnt out, um, bored, and just ready to reinvent myself. So I did integrative medicine fellowship here at the University of Arizona and learned a lot about um, integrating more holistic alternative medicine with conventional medicine, which has always been my passion. But, um, you know, there really wasn't a a place or a space for me to practice that way in doing high-risk obstetrics. So once I kind of got that training, I blossomed out, started a practice called Tula Wellness and Aesthetics. Um, And the focus there has been mostly on women's health. Um, But we've added a lot of the aesthetic aspects to it because I've learned that women love to feel good, but they really like to look good too. So when we can combine that and help women kind of find that happy space of feeling great, looking great, um, going into the second half of life, um, it's been a, it's a good, it's a good fit. So I've kind of um, just journeyed here and that's what I'm doing now. It's wonderful that you mentioned that sweet spot between feeling good and looking good and also the reinvention theme, that that constant state of creation, especially when one is out of the creation stage of um, womanhood and into out of the procreation stage, I should say, and into the (laughs) creation stage, even self-creation. Yeah. So I've noticed it for myself. I didn't really realize what was going on, but I see it now. Like I'm able to like retrospectively look at patients and clients and and I can kind of see where they are on that journey. So at 52, I'm still reinventing myself. But I think what was happening in my, you know, early 40s was that desire to move into something else and to just answer a different calling. And, you know, I think we're we're trained, or I was trained anyway, to, you know, I'm going to be an OBGYN, I'm going to practice this type of medicine, and, you know, that's just what I'm going to do. But at some point, it's like, well, how long do you have to do that? And what about doing something else? And what does that look like? So um, that's the reinvention. And I feel like I'm still like, dead in the middle of reinventing myself. And I see that with a lot of patients, too. You know, back in the day, we only lived as a species until we were 40 years old. So, you know, the carryover from that was that we would have one career or maybe one dedication or one focus. But at this point, since longevity is on the horizon as a expanding concept, 
we might need to reinvent ourselves more than two or three times in a lifetime. I am so eager to hear about some of the, pardon me, the challenges and the uh, issues that women come to you with. Uh, You know, we have really moved along in our ability to speak about sex and love and all the rest. Um, And... uh, so I envision that women are more open and forthright. What do you find that to be true, and what are they bringing to you? Um, I think most women that come to me don't really realize what they're looking for. Um, I think it's something that we discover as I talk to them, and I kind of hear where they are. I hear a lot of uh, themes that just continue to repeat. So. One of those themes is just, um, you know, their bodies are changing, um, libidos are changing, relationships are changing, and they're just kind of in a new space. And there are a lot of people who are no longer in longer-term relationships that they were in um, previously, or they're ready to just move on career-wise. They're working, but they're really not following their passion, so they're trying to figure out what, you know, what really at 40 still, what do I want to be when I grow up? Um, and so most of those conversations are around um, how they're feeling, because most of the time I, that's the point of contact for me. People come in, they're starting to go through um, perimenopause, so they're, they're having more irritability, less sex drive, um, hot flashes, and they're not really sure what's happening to their bodies. And so just giving them a better framework to work in, understand this is kind of what happens um, as we enter into our 40s and 50s. There's going to be some definite changes, and this is what it looks like. And then once they kind of realize that, then um, sometimes, not always, the aesthetic aspect comes in because that's the other part. People come in either as a medical patient or they'll come in as an aesthetic patient. Um, But what I always try to do is make it a holistic experience. So just the other day I had a patient come in. She came in for um, uh, hair loss treatment. But when I spoke to her, she's like in her mid-40s. And I had to ask a lot of questions because I was like, well, this might be thyroid. This might be your hormones. So yes, we could just do a hair loss treatment, but let's look at the whole picture. Let's look at your hormones. Let's look at your stress. Let's look at uh, your nutrition. And although we're still going to move forward with your aesthetic thing, she also signed up to be a medical patient. And now we're going to be dealing, looking at all of her labs, looking at how her hormones might be affecting her hair. And then once I kind of ask more guided questions, she's like, yeah, I have that too. Like, do you have mm-hmm. fatigue? Do you have, do you well, have, yeah. you know, we're so conditioned to only have two or three things to speak with a doctor about yes. that when one like yourself opens the door to prolonged conversation, it's a treat, Right. Yeah, especially what an honorable position to be in that you could be a trusted um, counselor, if you will, for the people who come in and and begin to open up like a flower a little bit more and a little bit more in terms of sharing. You know, you inspire um, that kind of intimacy. Yeah, and I'm just, um, I mean, I've had the practice now for uh, five and a half years, but I feel like I'm just kind of getting into my mojo of understanding how all these pieces are really connected and how to approach people so that they, you know, feel safe and understand that, you know, you may come in for one thing, but I just try to make it clear, like, 
that that one thing is affected by all these other things over here. So let's look at that and how to create a business model that makes sense has, has been a little bit of a challenge. But at the end of the day, I feel like most women are really grateful because you're right. That's just not an experience. They're kind of like, oh, you're going to talk to me about that. Like, I just thought I was going to get, you know, wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. And and go on. So um, people are very appreciative of that um, and that's what I wanted to look at a little bit closer because we have terrific questions that uh, we have gathered from our listeners and from past events that we have both uh, done. And so we can't wait to ask you those deeper, more personal, intimate questions. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Ariana Scholes Douglas and her Tula Wellness Practice. And we're talking about women and particularly women over 50 and some of the specific challenges that they face in their life, health-wise, sexuality-wise. And we can't wait and dig in and ask some questions that our listeners have sent in. We have been collecting questions in anticipation of having you both here and also having you at the um, Sex, Love, and All the Rest panel discussion in September. So, we can fire away if that's okay with you. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. How do you identify your G-spot? A uh, woman oh wants to know. Okay. Well, let's just jump on in there. Yes. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's still controversy about what we call the G-spot. So before we talk about that, I just got to make sure we kind of understand the overall female anatomy and how things operate. So for the most part, um, you know, women... Um, the majority of women require clitoral stimulation, um, but there's also other kind of zones that are uh, more um, sensitive. And everybody, every every woman generally has a clitoris, but everybody can't necessarily find the G spot um, because it is a little evasive, elusive. Um, but just from a anatomy structural standpoint, you would find it. Um, the easiest way would be whether it's standing or laying down. Um, you would place your finger into the vagina, and then it's called the come hither motion. So it's kind of like if you were telling somebody to come here with your index finger, that's the same motion that you would apply. Um, and you may or may not feel an area um, right as you um, come back out of the vagina, uh, it may feel a little bit more ridged, a little more um, uh, puffy or um, swollen, so to speak. And that's generally the, the zone. Where the controversy comes in is, you know, are there specific cells to that zone um, that identify that area? And, and some people have definitely looked into it and seen that it is the equivalent of the male prostate. So there is some indication that it is a specific area, but you can also find information in the literature like it really doesn't exist. Um, and I would say just from talking to patients, um, there are people who are easily identify it. 
and are able to, um, you know, whether you use toys or fingers, whatever, to get to where they need to go. Um, but I'd say probably the majority of women haven't quite found that area, and that's okay. That's really not um, a, an area that I would say every woman is going to have that same sensitivity. And what happens to the vagina as we age? Give us a little overview. Sure. So, you know, the vagina is generally just a long tube, um, and it's going to connect the, you know, the outside area. I mean, its purpose is really just to be that conduit. So, you know, evolutionary-wise, we, you know, if you have sex and there's penetration, the, the semen, the sperm can get to where it needs to go, which is into the cervix and through the uterus and into the fallopian tubes and hit the ovaries. But, um the, the vagina changes over time. So it's meant to expand. It's meant, um, obviously, to um, be that the canal for a baby to come out of. But when it's all said and done, um, on average, for a lot of women, that's they've gone through childbirth naturally with, you know, natural childbirth or whether it's a C-section. Uh, and they, are, they start to notice changes such as dryness. Um, that's the number one thing that happens is that estrogen, which is our kind of predominant, I call the juicy hormone, starts to decline. And that decline affects every organ, every tissue that's sensitive to estrogen. So the vagina, the urethra, um, the whole pelvis is sensitive to estrogen. And as we lose it, we lose those those effects. So I, I liken the, the analogy is the, the grape versus the raisin. So in our younger years, it's more like a grape. It's juicy, um, plump. And then as we age, um, we lose that lubrication. We lose that juiciness. And so the majority of the treatments we do to kind of restore women's sexuality, just restore the function of the vagina, is really just doing things that rejuvenate the tissue so that it goes back to where it was, you know, earlier in the day. So, of course, we get questions because our um, our listeners of a certain age are having their second, third, and fourth relationships, mm -hmm. like we said before, the longevity issue, then puts people in a position to want to be sexual way after the time when our ancestors may have kind of chalked it up to that was something for youth. Right. So you've invent invented a number yeah. of, um, well, you've decided to feature a number of methodologies, and perhaps you can talk a little bit about those. Yes, and we're familiar with that term mostly because of you, Dr. Ariana, and that is vaginal rejuvenation. Mm -hmm. It seemed so abstract in the beginning when we were hearing it, but certainly there is, it's like all over the um, world yeah. now. On Facebook, everywhere, right. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, and that's my goal is that at the end of the day, this is a conversation that is is not something that people need to whisper or, you know, um, again, there's even marketing um, for some of the um, um, machines is that their marketing is really like it's okay to talk about it. Like it's still a whisper, but, you know, this is still like almost a taboo topic, um, but it's a very... Um, normal situation where that's going to change. Our vaginas are not going to be as pliable. They're they're not going to lubricate the same way, and that makes intercourse painful. So there are multiple 
modalities. There's multiple treatments that we can use, notwithstanding just applying local hormones to the area that can also benefit it just as well. Uh, And in fact, um, that's usually what I try to start people with because it's not that everybody needs to go through a whole, you know, and I don't necessarily like the term vaginal rejuvenation. Um, In fact, even as recently as last week, the FDA came out with a statement. um, They're, they're, starting to look at how these companies are marketing it and what they're all the benefits that people can get and are they really all those benefits. And had I not been doing this procedure for the last three to four years, I would probably be like, oh, wow, that's terrible that people are doing that. But I know that these treatments work really well. I think it's the issue is just the marketing and how people are, you know, some of these, some women are frankly just going to be more vulnerable because they have certain concerns and they want to get them addressed. But I think um, most doctors who provide this are hopefully providing it ethically. They're explaining the pros and cons and the limitations of the procedure. But at the end of the day, all of these procedures generally do one thing, which is build collagen back up and stimulate tissue to function back to more of its youthful state. So bring us more into the grape mode as opposed to the raisin mode. And thank you for bringing that to our attention. That will now stay with us for the rest of the day. Okay, Metaphors were a thousand words, and it makes it very easy to communicate about it. Yes. Do yes. You, do you have a grape or a raisin? Yes. That's right. Yes. So uh, this question is, is masturbation a good method for keeping the vagina in shape if you're not having a regular intercourse? Yes. So basically the adage is if you don't use it, you'll lose it. And if you think about it, um, it's a tube. So it's a muscular tube and it will collapse on itself. And what keeps it able to expand is being able to at least, you know, minimally expand on occasion. (laughs) So um, I would say more importantly, it's important to sustain the physiology than the, the physical part, because even if it's not being used, so to speak, meaning specifically you're not having intercourse, um, it's that is worsened by the fact that you don't have any estrogen influence on it. So there are women that are low in estrogen or not doing any of these procedures, and they're having frequent intercourse, and that's that's one way. Um, but for those, um, the majority of women, um, they make. And I think that sometimes they wait too long. Yeah. We have actually, you know, friends who are very frank in their discussions about this set with us, and they wait two or three years, and then it takes them so much longer yeah. to plump up again. It, it takes a minute so to get like, it back. So it's like, get it working, honey, right? Yeah. Well, yes. I think we want to talk about vaginal fitness now. Yes. So that's maybe another way of describing that. I like that. <laughs> that I you like know, that. Right? It's perfect. Right? So we have the partnering of physiology as well as the physical muscle, and I think that we've gotten used to that concept in terms of all the other ways we take care of ourselves. So self-care, here we come, right? Right. That's what it comes down to. And it comes down to education. Yes. And self-care. Well, we'll be right back and to talk with Dr. Ariana Scholes Douglas about several other very interesting topics.
we're back. And one of the questions that has come across my desk is, I am so, our writer writes, I am so depressed because I've lost libido. I am totally in love with my new partner, but my libido is low. Is there anything that can be done? Yes, that's a very loaded question. So there's a lot of um, kind of nuances and, and other things that we need to address. So typically speaking, when you're in a new relationship, libido tends, that's when your libido is high. So if you are if you don't have a libido with a new lover, then I would say... Hmm, regardless would, of age. Regardless of age, yes. then that's a whole nother something. But... You know, women don't have libido for a variety of reasons. Um, The most common that I see is really just the working woman who has so much to do. She's been in a long-term relationship. Um, So between the kids, the long-term relationship, just the overall lack of intimacy, it just kind of starts to fade. And, of course, our hormones are changing as well. So all of those together just kind of make um, not for the best situation for libido. The most typical situation for probably older patients who um, are in new relationships, it's not that their libido isn't, it's just that it hurts. So that's the second reason why women don't have a libido. Nobody wants to do something that hurts. So their libido is down because it's just too uncomfortable. So I would have to first ask, is it your libido down because you, does it hurt? Then we need to fix that. Is it down because you just don't have one? Generally speaking, the whole new relationship for most women um, and I would say men, I don't see why not. They That tends to be, that's that honeymoon stage. Um, and I forgot to say that at the beginning, she has written that she had gone through chemotherapy. Ah, uh, yeah. And so we mustn't forget that the effect of other medicines and other drugs. And really, other treatments. And yes. other treatments yeah. has really... So, yeah. So overall, there is I think there's always help. A lot of it is just education. Um, And, you know, people kind of generally go to this intercourse mode where it's like if I can't have intercourse and I'm not, then something's not right. But really, as we age in particular, we want to be aware of all the other ways that we can be with our partners, pleasure our partners, pleasure ourselves and have a more open mind to what that looks like. So. Um, sometimes it is just a matter of educating patients. There are plenty of couples I've seen that, you know, they generally don't have a lot of intercourse, but they still have a lot of intimacy in their relationship. And what I've also noticed is that at the end of the day, most women, our libido starts in our brain, right? And it it really, if, if that's not happening, there's not a whole, there's no drug, there's no treatment. And I tell people when they come in. If you hate your husband, if you don't like your partner, I can't help you because for most women, our attraction, our um, wanting, our desires are starting in our mind and then we can physically manifest that, which is a little bit um, opposite for men where they may start more in the physical realm and then that's they create their intimacy more after they've had that physical connection. Whereas for most women, we have that physical, we have that intimacy, we need that intimacy first so that we want to have the physical connection. So I feel like it's, it's for a lot of couples, a disconnect and it's challenging. And that's really what's happening is that for one partner, you know, they're ready to go. And then the other partner, you know, they need a little bit more to get there. And- oh, so do partners come into 
see you ever? Or is it just um, women? It's typically women, um, but they do share um, about what's happening. And yes, I do see partners. Um, nice. And they're, you know, it's it's not the typical um, situation where a husband will come in. Uh, obviously, it can be awkward. Uh, we also work, I work closely with a sex therapist, um, a pelvic floor rehabilitation specialist. So if it's not me, then I'll usually make um, a recommendation as a couple. Like I'm not going to, I don't do couples counseling or do that. But um, but it has been helpful because, for example, I've had patients, um, one I can think of in particular, who um, she was much younger, but she was concerned about some of the issues with libido and what was happening. But come to find out, her partner was just kind of like, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. He was saying things such as like, oh, my other previous partners didn't take this long. Um, He, you know, she needed a whole lot more. And on average, women need a whole lot more. We always need it more. You know, if you look at that sexual response curve, we, we always slower on it relative to men. But as we age, I think that I don't even know if that's been looked at, but I feel like Cole, that, that's even This slower. is really good news. Oh, no, even slower, you're saying. Yeah. Oh, I thought it got faster. Uh, <laughs> okay. uh-huh. Well, a, we always have to leave room yeah. for personal experience. Correct, correct, And correct. they did say that women take a longer time to reach their sexual prime right. than men do. Right, right, yeah. exactly. But one of the things that comes up for me as I as I... I'm listening to this conversation, is the context, the, the cultural context in which our, our conversation is taking place, where women are feeling stronger, feeling more entitled, finding their voice more. And so we mustn't forget about, you know, the synergistic effect, if you will, of the context, the social context and the, the time in history yeah. that we are at the same time as these technologies have become within reach. Right, because uh, probably there's more uh, demand for it, right? Because women are clearer on what gives them pleasure. And more entitlement. And more entitlement, absolutely. But before we end, and we're, uh, we still have some time, um, I want us to talk a little bit about uh, DHEA and bioidentical hormones. It's such an important uh, question that one of our listeners sent in. Just what's the latest news on that. And and what is DHEA? Okay, so DHEA is also a hormone, um, but it is broken down primarily into uh, testosterone and to estrogen. So we consider it a little safer. Um, we can You can take DHEA orally as a pill. Um, we can uh, use it as a vaginal suppository. And that's really been the and within the last uh, year or two, there's um, it's been an FD, it's become an FDA approved drug called Intrarosa, and um, they're DHEA suppositories that are inserted vaginally, and we've been using them for years, but they had to be compounded. So now there's an FDA-approved treatment uh, that works well, and this, there have been some studies that have shown increased sexual response, definitely more lubrication. Um, and so it's a great um, alternative also for women who can't take estrogen um, because it's thought that you're now converting it to your own estrogen and your own testosterone. So as opposed to putting anything specific there, that you're getting the benefits without as much of the risk. So if there's still a little controversy, gray area there. 
Um, but at the end of the day, it's been a wonderful tool, the wonderful medication that we've increased the use in the practice a lot for, number one, it's this help with vaginal dryness, if nothing else. Um, the bioidentical hormones, that's a whole another aspect. You can take hormones, you know, orally, a patch, a suppository, sublingually, um, as it applies to vaginal fitness, as you put it, um, we generally would in, use the same um, mechanism of intravaginal treatment. So we can take suppositories and creams and basically insert them to get a local response. So bioidentical, all that means, first of all, is that it's just the same hormone, the same structure of hormone that your body makes. So there are different hormone replacement treatments on the market, but those are not the exact hormone that our body makes. So the thinking with the bioidentical, first and foremost, is that we want to take something that our, that our body recognizes better. And so there's, I don't think there's a whole bunch of debate as to why you would want to take something that your body would be able to absorb easier and faster. Where the issue comes in is... Um, and this is, again, a whole other topic. It's a whole other podcast, really, on bioidentical hormones. I think we should do that one time. Yeah. Most because, definitely. But at the end of the day, um, you want to, if you can, and there are FDA-approved bioidentical hormones out there now. Big Pharma has kind of gone along with it and, under, and understands and sees that there are other ways that we can get um, these uh, hormone levels without taking, quote-unquote, synthetic um hormones. And it's synthetic in the sense that they have other um, um, molecules attached that our body just has to do a little bit more work to break down. The other thing is, if you can, when you take a bioidentical, ideally, taking it transdermally, like through a patch or through a cream, is uh, one of the safer ways because it doesn't have to go through the liver, it doesn't have to be metabolized the same way, and your body can absorb it a little bit better. And so we know that there are decreased risks for some of the complications that we see with taking hormones if you take it in in the format of a transdermal patch or even a cream. The the questions or the problems come into play because in order to titrate and get the levels of hormones that you want and from a bioidentical standpoint, oftentimes you will need to get them compounded. So the bioidentical hormone itself is an FDA approved entity. But the combination of putting that now estradiol with testosterone, that is not an FDA-approved combination. So that's why there's some pushback as to whether or not these are good. And, and, and again, it goes back to that whole comment I made at the beginning with the FDA. It's really all about the marketing and how people are presenting this because we don't want to um, presented in a way that if you take a bioidentical hormone, that means you have no risk of taking hormones. That's not true at all. It, it's just that this is a more natural way to get that hormone because it just is closer to what your body is making. Um, but yeah, that's a whole nother. I guess an, another whole can of um, that's a can of worms right there. Can of worms um, has to do with Premarin and yes. the way that hormone is derived. So. 
we oh, can yeah. perhaps <laughs> go into that another With, another time. That's right. When right. we do a segment on bioidentical hormones, which would be terrific. Right. Well, right. as we wind this down, uh, Dr. Ariana, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we could actually be here for another two or three hours. But in the meantime, tell us how people can find you, uh, your website, your Instagram, your office, everything. Where are you? I don't know what all my hashtags or all of those are, but <laughs> I, I know at TulaWellnessMD.com, that's our website, so that's the best way to find us. Um, and the same on Facebook. I think you can Google it and it'll mostly come up. I think I'm Dr. Ariana. But um, I'll actually have some new pages. So I'm sorting all that out because I do have a book that's coming out. Um, it's yes, the, mention about that, yeah. that book on menopause. Um, it was called The Menopause Conversation, but I've since in the last couple of weeks changed it to now The Menopause Myth. Um, because really what I've come to realize in just talking to so many women is that there's just there's just so much ignorance and myth about what happens to us as we age and what we can do. So I'm focusing, I mean, it's the same content, but I'm kind of redoing it so that it, it speaks more to what is it that you think you believe about this or what do you believe and what was actually happening? And um, so that should be coming out in the next couple of months. And so there's a whole nother site of website and things. It'll be an author page, but I believe it'll be drariana.com. Um, and that's where you can learn more about the menopause myth. We love education. We, we, do. we, we do. absolutely endorse the idea that we really have to make the conversations more accessible, easier, more validating. And I think that's what this conversation aimed to do to the extent that we could take it as far as we could take it today. Thank you, ladies. Thank Always you. Always a pleasure. Lots to talk about. Lots. Okay. <laughs> Bye for now. For more information, visit our website, boomgoddessradio.com, and follow us on Facebook, Boom Goddess. We'd love to hear from you. Your interest powers our programs.